0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID 19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. South Africa was the first country to roll out the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Earlier this week, President Cyril Ramaphosa said that 80,000 J&J vaccines have arrived as the mass vaccination programme gets underway. The single-dose vaccine has shown to be effective in preventing moderate and severe disease from South Africa's dominant coronavirus variant, with an efficacy of 57% in trials conducted in South Africa. The B-1351 variant was responsible for 95% of cases in that trial and it has now appeared in more than 44 countries. We hear from Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski about this J&J vaccine, which has now been cleared by regulators in the United States. Also coming up in this episode, we hear fascinating insights on the pandemic from the inside of Discovery with Discovery Life CEO Rian van Rieenen. He shares what Discovery's data on claims tells us about the real rate of COVID-19 and what the Life Assurers actuaries have forecast if there is a third wave at Easter. First, the COVID 19 news making world headlines. Inside COVID 19, News. While the US and Europe focus on vaccinating their own populations, China and Russia are sending millions of COVID 19 vaccine doses to countries around the world. That's according to the Axios news site. The vaccines from China and Russia are the first to reach low income countries. It likely won't have broad access to vaccines until 2023, says the news agency. China has provided vaccines to 20 countries, including across South America and Africa, and has plans to send doses to at least 40 more, according to a Chinese foreign ministry statement sent to the Wall Street Journal. More than two dozen countries have authorised the use of Russia's Sputnik vaccine. Ten countries in Latin and South America have already received or will soon receive shipments, as have Slovakia, Hungary and several other nations. Axios reports that China's vaccines weren't as effective in clinical trials as some of those made in the US and Europe, but they do not require ultra-cold storage, which makes them easier to transport and distribute. Last week, China approved two more vaccines, bringing the total number of Chinese-made vaccines to four. One of the newly approved vaccines only requires a single shot. Axios notes that with reported daily COVID cases often in the single digits, China's leaders face less pressure to quickly vaccinate Chinese citizens. Only about 40 million doses had been administered domestically as of February 9th, falling short of the 100 million doses Chinese authorities had promised by that time. With much of the world stuck at home and probably bored, you'd be forgiven for expecting a baby boom to follow COVID-19 lockdowns. But as the Wall Street Journal reports a year into the pandemic, early data and surveys point to a baby bust in many advanced economies from the US to Europe, to East Asia, often on top of existing downward trends in births. The Wall Street Journal says that a combination of health and economic crises is prompting many people to delay or abandon plans to have children. Demographers warn the dip is unlikely to be temporary, especially if the pandemic and its economic consequences drag on. The UK became the first major economy to set plans to repair the damage to government finances caused by COVID-19 lockdown, saying it will raise taxes after the economy recovers from its worst downturn in more than 300 years. In a possible bellwether for other wealthy countries, the UK said on Wednesday that it would raise taxes starting in 2023 to cover the heavy costs of the pandemic, as new official forecasts showed a rapid vaccination drive means the economy is on course to make up lost ground to COVID-19 sooner than previously hoped. The decision puts the UK first among its peers to explain how it will pay for the massive government programs aimed at keeping millions of businesses and households afloat over the last year. The UK suffered the worst downturn among the Group of Seven advanced economies in 2020 and experienced one of the deadliest coronavirus outbreaks in the world. The planned tax increases would reverse a decades-long decline in the corporate tax rate that began in the early 1980s under the leadership of Margaret Thatcher. Researchers and doctors are sounding the alarm over a new, more aggressive coronavirus strain from the Amazon area of Brazil, which they believe is responsible for a recent rise in deaths, as well as infections in younger people in parts of South America. Brazil's daily death toll from the disease rose to its highest level yet this week, pushing the country's total number of COVID 19 deaths past a quarter of a million. The new variant, known as P1, is 1.4 to 2.2 times more contagious than versions of the virus previously found in Brazil and 25% to 61% more capable of reinfecting people who had been infected by an earlier strain, according to a study released on Tuesday. With mass vaccination a long way off across the region, countries such as Brazil risk becoming a breeding ground for potent versions of the virus that could render current COVID-19 vaccines less effective. That's the warning from public health specialists. Zimbabwe has become the first African country to authorise the use of India's only homegrown coronavirus vaccine, which the developers this week said showed strong efficacy. The first batch of Covaxin, which was co-developed by Bharat Biotech International Limited and the Indian Council of Medical Research, is due to arrive soon, the Indian Embassy in Zimbabwe said on its Twitter account. Italy has blocked a shipment of the AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine to Australia using a recently introduced European Union regulation. The move comes after Italian Prime Minister Maria Draghi called during an EU summit last week for a tougher approach against companies that do not respect their delivery commitments. Officials in Brussels and in Rome confirmed the news of the export ban of 250,000 doses of the shots. This was first reported by the Financial Times. The head of the world's biggest vaccine maker and the World Health Organization's chief scientist say manufacturers of coronavirus shots face a global shortage of the raw materials needed to churn out the inoculations. Adar Poonawalla, the chief executive officer of the Serum Institute of India, which is licensed to produce hundreds of millions of COVID-19 vaccines from AstraZeneca and Novavax, told a World Bank panel on Thursday that a US law blocking the export of certain key items, including bags and filters, will likely cause serious bottlenecks. There are also shortfalls of vials, glass, plastic and stoppers required by those companies. The controversy over the investigation by the World Health Organization and China into the origins of COVID-19 heated up as a group of scientists called for an independent probe to consider all hypotheses and nail down whether the virus came from an animal. A group of more than 20 signatories said in an open letter published by the Wall Street Journal that the existing mission isn't independent enough and demanded a new probe to consider all possibilities over the origin. Half of the joint team are Chinese citizens whose scientific independence may be limited, they said. The criticism comes as the mission considers delaying an interim report, which was expected soon. The investigators may instead publish that summary statement on the same day as the full report.
1: Inside COVID-19,
2: from Biz News.
0: Coming up, an in-depth interview with Discovery Life CEO Rian van Rienen, who shares in-depth insights on what life assurance claims tell us about COVID-19 and about how COVID-19 has changed this corner of the financial services sector. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. With me is Rian van and the Discovery Life CEO. Rian, Life Assurance is right at the coalface of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get into the details of how Discovery Life has been coping in this era of COVID-19, can we perhaps just sketch out how a life assurance company actually makes its money and how Discovery is a bit different?
3: Sure, that's a great question. Thanks, Jackie. Um, Discovery Life uh, focuses on protection business. Uh, so certainly in our retail individual life space, we've separated the protection business from investments uh, back when we started in 2000. It's about collecting premiums from our customers and then through good risk management practices, making sure that the Claims that we pay out are less than the premiums that we receive and uh, allowing for capital and uh, cost of risk, the the difference between premiums that we receive, claims that we pay, allowing for those, those costs are really the profit and that's how we make our money.
0: And then you also have this interesting overlay of the shared value model. How does that make your profit model different from one of your competitors?
3: The shared value model really manifests around our core purpose of making people healthier and it's integral to our to our product design. Uh, so in a nutshell, if we get healthier policyholders and policyholders to engage in healthy living activities, we would expect lower claims payable to those policyholders, which gives us a bigger profit in the risk pool. So the premiums that we could End up being the same or else being equal, having lower claims gives us bigger profit pool that we share with those customers, and we can then channel those savings back into either lower premiums through premium discounts, paybacks through returning premiums to customers or enhanced benefits. and then you really create a virtuous cycle. so the more benefits we give back to policyholders, the bigger the incentives are for them to Engage in wellness activities, which in turn leads to bigger savings, and we can then share that with those customers again. So you end up in this cycle that's good for us, good for customers, good for advisors.
0: The work of an actuary, my understanding of actuarial work is that actuaries have to do a lot of calculations and assessments and try and basically figure out the likelihood of us dying uh, when we're going to die so that you can then calculate premiums in a way that ensures that you don't lose out. Is that right?
3: That's certainly part of it. It's uh, not not all that uh, grim looking at at death and mortality statistics all day, luckily. Uh, That's an integral part of what an actuary or a valuations type of actuary would do at a life company. In Discovery, we've got a wide range of actuaries and actuarial skills, and we really have actuaries involved in all aspects of the business. I think that's also something that's quite unique to Discovery. For example, we've got a whole team of actuaries dedicated to product design and innovation. We've got a team of actuaries looking at the financials of a company. We've got actuaries involved on the marketing side and then also on the management side. So I think uh, given that actuarial science is at the heart of what we do in Discovery Life, Uh, actuaries are integral to to the whole running of the operation and certainly on the innovation side as well.
0: So the world's epidemiologists have misjudged the death rate with COVID-19 and various other aspects of it, which is perhaps understandable because it's a new disease. How have your actuaries changed their calculations, if at all, to factor in COVID-19, given that it's a moving target?
3: It's a brand new disease, something unlike the world has ever seen Um, And hence, it's an ever, ever evolving science. As we get to learn more uh, about this disease, uh, we have updated our models and have responded accordingly. Uh, We've set up a fairly prudent provision uh, back in June 2020 with our full year results of uh, nearly two billion rand. And uh, mostly claims have played out quite closely to what we originally projected, uh, the second wave was slightly worse compared to our original projections, and we've adjusted our claims provision marginally. Uh, our total COVID provision, uh, we've increased by about 150 million Rand at the end of December, um, which is about 7% of the provision that we've established originally. So we have made minor tweaks in our understanding. Uh, the one aspect which has played out significantly better than what we originally thought. It's just the impact on the economy and the impact on lapses of life policies. So although we've seen slightly higher claims uh, uh, than we projected, certainly through the second wave, uh, we've seen significantly lower lapses countering that uh, additional cost of claims. Is that Uh, because people
0: are more uh, aware that they're going to die and so therefore don't want to run the risk of not having life assurance?
3: I think that's, that's certainly a part of it. The pandemic has amplified the value and the need of life insurance. So you, you do get this counterbalance that the, the value of the life insurance has certainly has certainly increased and people are hanging onto it, onto it more than usual.
0: Let's have a closer look at your projections. You've got a very interesting graph here from a presentation that you gave recently looking at the second wave runoff and then some projections about what might happen at Easter. Can you just tell us a bit about... This forecast, which is 92,500 deaths on your slide here.
3: Yes, we've run various scenarios in planning how COVID could potentially play out. And I think it talks to your previous question as well around how does this evolve? There, there's a number of factors that are really impacting on future COVID claims. The one would be looking at the buildup of immunity in a population which is impacted uh, through natural herd immunity as more people get impacted and inf- infected. It's also impact through vaccination availability and then the reinfection rates, which we're only really starting to get data on now to understand. And then there's also a big behavioral impact, how people behave, risky behavior in, in big groups, for example, and also how susceptible people are to get sick from contracting the disease, for example, by age or underlying comorbidities. So if we factor all of that together, we can tweak the various parameters in the model to see how this could play out. So we've shown um, if we have a second wave running off without having a significant super spreader event, then we're unlikely to see a a third wave, and we're unlikely to see a significant increase in, in the projections. However, if we do have a super spreader event at Easter, I guess similar to what we saw in November last year through the uh, Belita rage parties, we might see a significant increase in infections again, which leads to a third wave. And important, in the absence of a vaccine mass vaccine rollout in the near future, that could lead to to excess deaths, the 92,000 that we projected that, you, that you've just mentioned. Sorry, uh, would either, this be in addition
0: uh, to the deaths we've seen already or is it part of the total for South Africa?
3: That would be an additional excess deaths and th- in addition to your normal deaths that you would expect and in addition to what we what we have already seen. Uh, the, the antidote to that is obviously either better behaviour or a mass vaccine programme rollout. So we're really emphasising the need for people to continue to behave responsibly and the need to accelerate any vaccination efforts.
0: How likely to see this death rate and the super spreader event? Because you've also done all these calculations looking at herd immunity. You say that you think more than 50% of the population may already have had COVID, but then we're also looking at reinfections, which on one of your charts, you say you're taking into account a one-third reinfection rate. What is your rationale for that?
3: So the one-third reinfection rate Rationale is based on a number of factors. Um, it's consistent with the data that we have observed within discovery, uh, where we've seen a positive test result on the same individual after a period of time have elapsed. It's also consistent with some of the uh, research that scientists have done, just tracking antibody development and how that runs off, uh, extrapolating that to a potential chance of a reinfection. And the conclusion from that is really that is about a third the probability of a reinfection compared to what an original infection rate would have been, which uh, luckily is, is reasonably low. Coupled with that, we also have and we have observed initial data emerging that, given a reinfection, the outcomes are also potentially significantly better. So once you've had the disease even after a reinfection rate, the chances of, of getting severely ill from that disease does appear to be lower. But again, the data is quite quite low and still emerging. So there's a lot to be learned a lot to be learned on that.
0: So just for clarity for people who don't have the slide in front of them, if we don't have another super spreader event or a spike, we can expect another sixteen and a half thousand people to die this year from COVID nineteen? Is that right?
3: Approximately I mean that is a ballpark a ballpark figure. So Somewhere between 15 and 20,000 um, is the estimated number on, on that slide. That really is, to a large extent, dependent on people continue to behave responsibly and no mass gatherings um, in the near future.
0: And then you also mentioned it's critical to vaccinate high-risk groups by winter. How do you assess the, ra- the vaccination rollout as it stands? Do you think that this is going to be achieved by winter?
3: The vaccination rollout is a challenge. I think there's a number of challenges involved, not only in South Africa, I think worldwide as well, if you follow just how it's been rolled out in, in different countries. Vaccine availability is one of the key challenges, The determining the efficacy of those vaccinations also also a key, and based on that, the vaccination then needs to get approved for mass use in, in each country. And then there are also the logistical challenges of rolling out uh, vaccinations at at this scale. So I'm very confident that we'll see a significant increase in in vaccinations and in the effort uh, in the in the coming months. Uh, but I do think we do have to be uh, patient and just uh, recognizing some of these challenges that we that we need to overcome in South Africa, but also worldwide. Um, and uh, it will take some months before we before we reach those goals.
0: How has COVID-19 changed the way that you offer life insurance products? Have you had to make any changes to the fine print or take any products off the table?
3: No, not, not from a product point of view so much. In fact, we've added benefits to our product. One example is the multi-organ benefit. We've seen, especially looking at the US emerging data at the time, That COVID tend to impact multiple body systems at the same time in certain severe cases. So, whereas traditional severe illness cover, we're focused on one body system at a time being very, very severely impacted, it didn't necessarily cover for COVID, which impacts multiple organs, which in isolation, each one isn't as severely impacted to lead to a claim, but the combination leads to very, very detrimental health outcomes. So we've launched a multi-organ benefit, which would pay out under, under that scenario and uh, typically aimed at COVID. So in fact, we've enhanced our product offering rather than cut back. Where COVID was a big challenge, certainly initially, was more the operational side of how you deliver the life insurance product to, to clients. One example is uh, medical underwriting. So especially for larger cases or certain benefits, uh, one would need to have medical underwriting uh, requiring a nurse or a doctor to see a prospective policyholder. And certainly given the hard lockdown initially, those services were unavailable. So we had to resort to other measures to provide cover until such time that we can do medical underwriting. We've relied on technology to reduce the need for medical underwriting and adapted our processes to really have a better outcome and a better better delivery of our products to customers.
0: When you look at the claims, are people claiming for COVID deaths or is this a fairly normal profile of deaths that you're seeing?
3: No, we've seen a significant increase in death claims and specifically as a result of COVID uh, throughout this period. We, we're again fortunate that we have access to very good data so we can track the majority of our policyholders from when they get diagnosed with COVID. We can reach out, given that data, to our high-risk policyholders. And we've launched, for example, a oximeter campaign where uh, we've rolled out more than 2,200 oximeters to our policyholders who contracted COVID and who were at risk managing them through, through this uh, through this process. As a result, we can identify COVID claims reasonably accurately within Discovery Life. That led to, at the date of what we reported, so about two weeks ago, about one and a half billion extra payments directly as a result of COVID since the, since the start of the pandemic. So quite a material impact on the claim side.
0: One thing that seems to be coming through is that many people are not necessarily dying of COVID-19 at the time they test positive, but they die later, maybe a couple of weeks later, maybe a couple of months later. Do your stats take that into account? At at what point do you consider somebody having died of COVID-19 and then not having died of COVID-19?
3: The best way to think about that is what is the excess number of deaths uh, that you see in a period compared to what what you would have expected in a typical year? and compare that to the cases that are identified as, as so-called COVID deaths. And those correlate quite well. So we do see about, a, on average, a two-week time lag, uh, two to three-week time lag between the time of uh, spikes in infections and the spike in in mortality claims as a result of COVID. So I think they correlate quite closely. There aren't too many cases that we believe will come through as a COVID death. Uh, which ended up being something else, it's it's actually the opposite. Uh, you do sometimes see some another description on the death certificate, uh, whereas you know from our data that the policy elder has been admitted into hospital as a result of COVID and passed away as a result of COVID. Again, the, the data that we've got available in Discovery Life allows us to track it very, very closely.
0: There was a lot of talk at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic about people with comorbidities being at high risk. But again, we're also hearing about people who seemed to be healthy and young people dying. What are you seeing in your statistics about so-called healthy people dying of COVID-19?
3: Yes, we have seen that. Uh, We can see a clear correlation between age as well as comorbidities. So for Older people, unfortunately, are significantly more susceptible to COVID, as well as people with comorbidities, um, hypertension, high cholesterol, heart disease. Um, in particular, we do see uh, COVID being much more severe um, in those in those policyholders than others. And we do have some deaths coming through of healthy policyholders that tend to be a lot a lot less than the deaths on the less healthy clients. We've done a fascinating exercise overlaying physical exercise and healthy living through our vitality program with the risk of contracting uh, severe COVID and dying from COVID. And there's a very, very stark correlation showing that um, healthy living and physical exercise materially, materially reduce the risk of of, uh, severe outcomes under COVID. Uh, So it does show that uh, just like you can manage your health uh, with regards to non-communicable disease, uh, there seems to be a good correlation enabling enabling an individual to reduce your risk of of a severe outcome in COVID by engaging in healthy living and physical exercise. It's not a guarantee, but it certainly can lower your risk of a, of a bad outcome.
0: Last question on your statistics. Do you think we're going to see a fourth wave at all? You spoke about the possibility of a third wave. What are the chances of us seeing a third wave, a fourth wave?
3: Sure, that, that's a, a very good question. Again, it depends on a number of factors. Again, probably on reinfection rate and further mutations of the virus uh, primarily. Uh, the chances of seeing uh, a material third wave and then a material fourth wave without a mutation in the virus or without a significant increase in the reinfection rate is probably reasonably low just given that you should reach um, herd immunity by that stage, and also the vaccination rollout um, should be, hopefully, quite far down the road um, during during that stage. So as long as we can vaccinate quickly enough to to prevent future mutations of a virus, um, I'm reasonably optimistic about the, the low chances of a fourth wave. Uh, but as you stated in one of your your early questions, this is a novel disease and uh, we are learning as, a, as of a world on the fly how this, how this disease develops and how this virus develops over time.
0: Rian, the business community is always fascinated to hear about how things work behind the scenes at Discovery. It's one of those businesses that many people aspire to work for. You've been there since your early 20s. Tell us a bit about why you chose to work for Discovery and what attributes you need to succeed at Discovery.
3: Yeah, sure. That's taking me back a long time. I've joined Discovery in 1999 when it was uh, just a a health insurer and and health administrator at the time. But I think what what really appealed to me thinking back was uh, the people and the core purpose of the business. It was founded by visionary leaders, um, Adrian Gore, Barry Swatchberg, who are still there, very much involved in the the day-to-day runnings of the business and the the vision and purpose of this business was quite clear to me on day one. Um, it was uh, the whole vision of making people healthier, I think is something that that uh, resonated with me um, and the, just this vision of uh, building a very special organization from the health business into other businesses in future also also resonated with me. The quality of people in discovery is also remarkable. I've never ever uh, came out of a meeting uh, that I didn't feel inspired and uh, where my own thoughts weren't challenged by the other people in the room. So I think it's really the, the combination of having a, a very clear vision, a strong core purpose and brilliant people to, to work with uh, every day that that inspired me.
0: And who are your mentors?
3: There are various various mentors that um, that I think you can can look up to. Innovation has always been something that uh, I've held in a high regard. Um, so, so anybody that really drives innovation. So um, Adrian Gore has been at the front of that, uh, driving the innovation, but also driving driving a clear vision and driving strong leadership. Uh, that really that really inspires to me. So. Uh, visionary leadership uh, is always something that's, uh, that I can find inspiration from.
0: That's very interesting. So the vision at Discovery, can you tell us a bit more about that? Is that a long-term vision? Do people stick to the vision? Do they change the the objectives a lot? How, what does that clear vision look like?
3: Yeah, the vision is very clear um, in the long term. and I think the overall vision is to build a, a special company focusing around the core purpose of making people healthier and enhancing and protecting their lives. And that, is, that has taken different, uh, different forms in the delivery of that vision. So on the one hand, we've got a very stable long-term vision, but underneath that there's frantic activity of constant innovation, constant uh, driving as hard as we, c- we can on all fronts uh, to deliver in that vision. So you, you, you have this marrying of a very stable long-term view and frantic activity which adjusts continuously on the back of, of innovation uh, to really deliver that. I um, hope that makes sense.
0: Yes, it does. And Rian, I hear from some of your colleagues that you're a very supportive mentor at work. A lot of people underestimate that role. Why did you take up that role and and why do you guide other people in the workplace?
3: I think that's one of the natural Areas to which, to which I've also been attracted to and leading other people and seeing people grow, achieving much more than what they ever thought is possible or or thought can be done. I mean that's that's really uh, inspiring and very fulfilling to just see how people develop and yeah rise to things bigger than what they thought ever was possible. So I think that's just uh, one of those things that I really enjoy.
0: What do you see next to yourself in in your career? Do you see yourself staying with discovery, broadening your role there?
3: I've been with Discovery for more than 22 years now, and I can say it's never been a never been a dull moment in those 20 years. I started as a junior actuary in the health in the health business. I had the opportunity to move across to life and uh, build Discovery Life from the start. From that, we've built Discovery Invest, expanded into the UK life insurance market, as well as some of the shared value insurance propositions that we've launched worldwide really at the basis from the learnings that we had in discovery life so there's never never ever been a, a, dull, a dull moment or a boring moment where, where we've uh, sat around idly uh, so it's hard to hard to imagine not continuing on that on that trajectory so as long as we can uh, keep up the innovation and, and stay true to our core purpose, which I've no doubt that we will. I can certainly see myself being part of our journey for, uh, for many years to come and building Discovery Life out um, uh, to, to really build on our market-leading position. I think we've, only, we've achieved remarkable success over the last 20 years, but we're never sitting still uh, looking backwards. It's always a matter of looking forward. How can we grow the business? How can we offer better products, better service to our customers? And that's, what's, that's really what's keeping us motivated and keeping us driving forward. So I think the short answer is we've only just begun in Discovery Life and there's a significant road ahead of us with great things hopefully to come.
0: You've been listening to Rian van Rienen, Discovery Life CEO. Next. Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorsky speaks to Riley Griffin of Bloomberg about how J&J is ramping up production to immunize 100 million
2: Americans by the end of June. So tell me, what does he see as the role for a one-dose vaccine, either
1: in terms of the U.S. vaccine campaign or, or more globally? Alex Gorsky said a one-shot vaccine is going to be a critical tool in reaching populations that interface less frequently with the healthcare system. Like U.S. top infectious disease specialist Anthony Fauci, he discussed it particularly as a boon to rural communities in the U.S.
4: The impact that a single-dose vaccine, I think, can have on access and distribution around the world just can't be overstated. We have now three vaccines uh, that have been approved. We have dozens more that are in development. All these vaccines have been shown to be incredibly safe, uh, incredibly effective. Now uh, that uh, we have that kind of a profile with a single dose uh, that requires standard refrigeration um, as you would expect with very commonly used vaccines at a not-for-profit price, we think that that will significantly reduce Uh, some of the administrative, some of the logistical challenges associated uh, with, uh, with the actual vaccine administration.
1: Administering a single dose is going to be fairly cost effective for health systems too. A one and done vaccine doesn't require the time and the resources needed to orchestrate and schedule out a second dose administration. And administering shots costs money. So this will certainly lessen the burden on health systems around the country. Finally, the Johnson & Johnson CEO mentioned that price point here is a critical factor and will be important at global scale. J&J is offering the shot on a not-for-profit basis, which means less than $10 per regimen. Now compare that to Pfizer and BioNTech, which are asking in the U.S. 39 per regimen, or Moderna at 33 per regimen. That's going to create a more affordable option globally. And with the logistical convenience to boot, you could see it as the vaccine of choice for many in low and middle income countries.
2: So given that J&J has now received emergency use authorization for its vaccine in the U.S., what does the pace of production look like for J&J moving forward?
1: Yeah, so J&J is going to deliver 3.9 million doses of its one shot vaccine within the next 24 to 48 hours, Gorski said. And the company wants to speed up its timeline, actually, of supplying enough vaccines to immunize 20 million Americans by the end of the month, and a total of 100 million Americans by the end of June. How are they gonna do that? Well, they're gonna focus on two different parts of the production process. First is its capacity for making a live cold virus, called an adenovirus, that's used in the shot to trigger an immune response that fights off infection. They actually have to create proteins, and that takes some time to grow. So they want to build out capacity there. Another space they want to augment is the company's fill-finish process. That's the facilities where the drug substance at the very final part of the production process are actually placed inside vials. Fill-finish capacity is fairly limited in this country and beyond. And as a result, the company is looking to increase it in the future.
4: I mean, I don't believe that there's ever been a time in history to see that many actual doses produced in that period of time. Based upon the work that we've already done, as you noted, we're we're getting out 3.9, literally within the next 24 to 48 hours. And and what's really important in this, Riley, is that those 3.9 million doses are regimens also. And so that means 3.9 million more people here in the United States will be vaccinated. We're uh, also simultaneously going through the regulatory approval process, for other manufacturing facilities. Over the course of March, you'll see a ramp up to 20 million doses, and then it will continue to ramp up uh, the way that we just talked about by June to 100 million doses. And and we are doing everything we can, partnering um, with the United States government and other external manufacturers to see what we can do to accelerate and increase uh, that number as well so that Uh, Our goal consistent from the very beginning is to achieve almost a billion doses by the end of 2021.
1: We actually also heard from a Biden administration official today suggesting that distribution and delivery are going to be a bit uneven across these early first weeks of March. But we'll see more supply in the back half of the month and it ramp up even further as we make it past March.
2: You know, at this point, Riley, there are several COVID-19 vaccines authorized for use in the US, Uh, Johnson & Johnson's, of course, alongside now what's available from Pfizer and Moderna. What do you think it's important for Americans to know as more people confront whether to get the vaccine and indeed
1: which vaccine to get? A lot of our readers or listeners and generally the public are looking at the data and trying to compare results out of clinical trials. And I think it's important for them to, to know that you can't have an apples-to-apples comparison here. These clinical trials were conducted at different parts of the course of the pandemic. And j notably, was really at peak infections around the world. It's actually the largest COVID-19 vaccine trial to date, and they had plenty of sites here in the U.S., of course, but also in places like Brazil, and in South Africa where more transmissible virus variants have really dominated.
4: I think what uh, we've been particularly uh, pleased with is that when you consider that our trial was done, really at likely the mo- one of the most challenging times of this pandemic. So our, our phase three clinical trial started in September, uh, October, that did not finish until, still not finished, we're ongoing, but was measured through January and if you look at the incidence rates around the world uh, they were at some of their highest levels number 2 our our trials conducted on a global basis so approximately 40% of our patients were in latin america i believe around 45% were in the united states 15% were in south africa and in south africa over 90% of the patients that were infected had the south african the 1351 variant and we saw a significant number with the P2 variant in northern Brazil. And so at a time when the infection rates uh, were at uh, among their highest, when we were seeing these new strains at a very significant level, we were still able to demonstrate very strong overall efficacy rates, but particularly in the severe cases where we saw efficacy rates higher than 80% and. We saw hundred percent of the time we were effective in keeping patients out of the hospital and keep them from dying, which we think are two of the more and most important data points for patients, for consumers, uh, for healthcare systems to understand.
1: The most important point to note, again, is as a public health tool, J&J's vaccine serves its purpose. It keeps people from getting very sick and was 100% effective in keeping people out of the hospital and from dying. That is critical because that reduces the strain on the health system. I spoke actually with Michelle Williams, an epidemiologist and the dean of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and she said, quote, this is not the time to be quibbling over decimal places or the levels of efficacy that we're seeing. And her message was really clear. Vaccines as a public health tool are meant to keep people from getting sick, becoming hospitalized, and overwhelming the healthcare system. And that's precisely what J&J's vaccine does.
0: And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time, I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews.
4: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.